Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Imagine, if you will, a woman who stops her car on the side of a highway to render assistance at the scene of an accident, leaving her two children in the car under strict instructions to stay put. And when she's sure that help is on the way, she returns to her car to find her two boys have vanished without a trace. Are you hooked yet? It's impossible not to be. And what follows is one of the most emotional, compelling, kick-in-the-guts novels I've read in a while. A book that explores the lengths a mother will go to to protect her children. A high-stakes story that delves into the psyche of fear and what we do when we're scared. It had me gripped from start to finish. And I'm telling you all now, listeners, it's a definite must-read. The novel is called Shearwater and the author is Leah Swan. Welcome to the podcast, Leah. Oh, thanks for having me, Claudine. It's great to be here. Congratulations on such a brilliant novel, Leah. How are you feeling about the reception it's getting at the moment? Oh, Claudine, I've I've been really touched, actually. People have got in touch with me uh, on social media or through the website, and some people have said, I've never written to an author before, and I've just finished it, and I just had to reach out and tell you what I thought. And that, to me, is is just amazing and quite humbling really that people are so touched by the story it's what you hope for but you know you never know really quite what to expect when a book goes out into the world now you're an award-winning author of short stories and a middle grade fantasy fiction series a journalist and a speechwriter but this is your debut adult novel isn't it it is yes there are a few failed novels in the draw, Claudine, which oh, I guess yeah. every any writers who are listening will relate to. And this took me a while to do, but I really gave it everything I've got. I'm glad that it's finally out there in, in the public domain. Had you always wanted to write an adult fiction novel? What prompted that leap between YA and short stories and adult fiction? The first thing I had published actually was a collection of short stories. And I've always read adult literary fiction and always hoped to publish a book like that. The short stories got published and in the meantime I had children and I was telling them bedtime stories and my husband was listening to me tell the children in the car and he said you really should write that one down and funnily enough I actually thought to myself oh I don't know if I want to write the children's book but I ended up writing them and they just came through and turned into a fantasy trilogy sort of for children between 8 and 13. And it was a wonderful experience. And one of the things it taught me actually was the importance of plot and keeping the pages turning and keeping people engaged. And I realised that a lot of my preoccupation as a writer has always been in relationships and character development and sort of following people around and seeing what they do. But really for a reader to be engaged, plot, it is really important and it has to be engaging There has to be something that keeps you turning the pages and to really create that feeling of being lost in a book, which as a child, I absolutely loved that experience. And to be able to create that for other people was my wish. I don't think you had any problem keeping anyone engaged. The opening of this book is one of the most compelling I've read in a while. But for the benefit of those who haven't read it, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the story and also what inspired you to write it. I actually was on a road trip when the first 
scene, which is really, as you read it on the page now, sort of drifted into my mind. It was a situation rather than a character. And it was, you know, this woman driving. She's on her way to a town called Deerwater on the Great Ocean Road. She has her children in the back. And there's this feeling of excitement in her. They're nearly there. They're about to start a new life. But there's also a little sense, you know, she's looking in the rearview mirror a lot. She's leaving something behind, but you don't know anything about that until a little bit later. And then she sees something wrong in the sky. She sees this plane and they all watch, all three of them sort of watch aghast as this light plane crashes into a nearby field. Even though it's the last thing she wants to do, she stops to help. She feels compelled to help. We later learn about Ava that she's actually a trained first responder. She's a a swimming teacher and a coach and all those things. And she's worked in those situations before. So she tells the boys to stay in the car and she goes to help. And then, of course, as you've outlined, she comes back to the car and the boys have gone. Nobody saw them go. Other people have arrived in the meantime to help, but nobody saw them go and nobody knows where they've gone. And that's really my curiosity about what happens next that's kind of where the scene that came into my mind ended and it was quite a few years ago now my children were little and it was territory I didn't really want to explore at that time and I kept putting it aside and it's interesting Claudine it just kept coming back and eventually I thought "Mm, just gonna write that first scene and see how it unfolds and then I just wrote the next scene to sort of see what happened and then I kept going. The whole first draft was like that, just kind of unearthing the story and letting it tell itself to me in a way. And then later on, of course, in the drafting process, sort of crafting it so it was not so big and unwieldy and a little bit more punchy and tightly paced. You mentioned the fictional town of Shearwater and the fact that it's set on the shipwreck coast along the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. Is that right? That's right. Why there? Yeah, we spent... um, I don't think about seven summers down there at a little place called Peterborough, which is it's quite a long way from Melbourne. And so it was never a crowded place and it hasn't changed very much actually in the, in the decades since then. I went back for a, a bit of a research trip a few years ago. The milk bar there still has a poster for film on the side of it. <laughs> um, advertising, you know, yeah. it's one of those gorgeous, sleepy seaside towns in it's very small but it didn't have what I needed for the story so I invented a town which had the qualities that I needed and I kind of mentally positioned it between Port Campbell and and Peterborough Mm. but that coast I don't know if you've ever been there but it is incredibly beautiful like it has these incredible golden cliffs the water which can sometimes be a very dark blue and sometimes it's very bright and it's very wild and swimming in that water is really quite full on like it it's not like a bay beach it's really strong coastal water I had many experiences of being dumped Mm. by that water and having my face dragged along in the sand and in fact the beach where we used to swim as kids has now been designated as unsafe for swimming which (laughs) which made me laugh out loud when I saw the sign um but um but there was something very wild about it, about and that feeling of being pummeled by nature and being in there with the elements. Yeah. I think these places, especially when you're there in your formative years, like they become part of your inner landscape. And years later, it really did seem like a wonderful place to set a novel. Now, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but as mentioned, 
earlier, fear is a very prevalent theme throughout this book. Not only is there the fear that Ava holds out for her missing boys, but the fear of her estranged husband, Lawrence, a fear that compelled her to move with her boys in the first place. So I wanted to ask you, is domestic abuse something you consciously set out to explore when you were writing this book? I guess what I really was setting out to explore partly was the nature of relationships and I had witnessed in a few relationships this very controlling behaviour of one person over another person and why that happens and why it's so hard to talk about and finding language to explain how that happens for people. And then as I drafted the book, I realised that actually one strand of it is a domestic violence strand. But it wasn't something that I sort of thought to myself, you know, this is a terrible issue in our our society I'm going to write a book about it it was sort of the other way around you don't know what you're writing about sometimes until you've written it and then you begin to see those things emerge and then as you redraft the story you might bring up certain elements or tone down certain elements but certainly that kind of strange space that exists between people especially when one personality is a bit toxic or difficult. It has always intrigued me, partly also because how do you relate to someone who is not playing by the rules, so to speak? You know, in most relationships, there are difficulties and challenges, but most of the time people have a a certain measure of goodwill. But we know, don't we, from stories on the news, stories around us, even relationships we may have observed that there are individuals who don't have goodwill towards the person they're in relationship with or they allow their lack of goodwill to get the better of them in some way. And I find this very mysterious and troubling because I'm a believer, I suppose, in shared humanity and giving people the benefit of the doubt. But there's also a point where you have to say this is not acceptable. What research did you do to be able to write so authentically about Ava's experience? Um, Well, I mean, for many years, I've been an observer of human relationships. I've witnessed this kind of relationship firsthand a a few times Mm -hmm. and heard about it and recognised it from stories that people have told me. It is also a character that's emerging more in the culture now. Like, for example, a few years ago with House of Cards, these kind of people who don't seem to operate according to the same level of conscience that we assume in other people. And I find that intriguing. But also I have done a lot of reading. I read a book called The Psychopath Next Door and I think it's The Sociopath Next Door actually. And there was a series of books that came out about eight years ago about that personality type. I looked into those, read those. I'm a bit hesitant about using phrases like psychopath and sociopath because I think they are a bit alienating and I'm not really sure that we really know what we're talking about. (laughs) Like, I mean, a trained psychiatrist might know, but I I don't. I certainly found the first-hand account of some who a woman talking about herself and not having the same sense of conscience she became aware that she didn't have the same sense of conscience as other people and I found that fascinating Mm. but then I also wondered was she being disingenuous you know was she being entirely honest about her story there was a sense of because we don't have the shared values what's really going on what's the what's this narrative really about It's this kind of shifting thing and trying to grasp that and look at it is really challenging. Moving on to the title of your book, not only does it refer to the fictional town that Ava is moving to, but also the migratory 
birds that appear throughout the narrative as an extended metaphor, if you like. It's so interesting. It's the second book in a month that I've read that has referred to these birds and I'd never heard of them before. So tell me about that. Tell me about the shearwater bird and the title and how that all came about. The shearwater birds came actually quite a lot later. So shearwater of the town is spelt as in Shearwater with a double E-R. And that was, you know, that first scene I was telling you about. She was driving to somewhere called Shearwater. It was just in my mind. I didn't really choose the name. And what I liked about that was, for me, water is emblematic, I suppose, of the emotional life, which the story is very much about. And then later on, I became aware of the migratory passage of these Shearwater birds. They have the longest migration in the world. They go all the way up to the Bering Strait in the north and then come all the way back to places like Peterborough and Tasmania. And it's an incredible feat. What also intrigued me is when you look on a map what they're actually doing, it's almost like a figure eight as they're crossing over those oceans. And that is, of course, a symbol of infinity or eternity. And I liked that juxtaposition of this idea of the eternal rhythms of nature and the intense psychological daily concerns of our everyday life. The story is very much in that realm of emotional exchange. The fear is dialed up pretty high. And I just felt that pulling back and giving this other perspective lets a little bit of air and light into the narrative. They're actually moving over the surface of the planet. And all of our you know, immensely important human daily life takes place on this planet, which has these beautiful rhythms. And we often forget that this is going on and it's going on constantly. As I said, I've never heard of these birds before, which are also interestingly called mutton birds as well. That's right. Yes, they used to be prized eating birds. So there's a huge mutton bird industry in Tasmania, sort of in the 50s and 60s. And I think they got a bit nervous about numbers so that stopped and their oil they were also prized for their oil your story is told from a number of different points of view so we get different snippets of the story from different angles so I wanted to ask did you have the shape of the story in your head before you started to write or was it more about discovering the story as you went along oh much more the second and I think I started with Ava that's the other character but she was in such a state of shock and fear after the boys had left I realised I couldn't tell the whole story from her perspective because just as an author, as a writer, I didn't want to be in that space all the time. And I felt that it would be a bit unrelenting for the reader as well. So I built in these other perspectives. One is Lawrence, her estranged husband. One is Simon, who's a bystander who comes to help in that first scene. And he's also returning to Shearwater. He's got his own backstory and trouble. He's going to stay with his brother. He becomes a friend to Ava over that short period of three days. And then the other main perspective, of course, is Max, the older boy. I didn't start writing from his perspective, but as soon as I did, I realised that I'd kind of struck gold in a way. He was such a beautiful character. (laughs) I just fell in love with him, really. You learn very quickly that he's a bit of a shy, indecisive 
boy and then he's plunged into a situation beyond what he's ever experienced before and he has to make decisions and he has to protect his little brother. He is, I think, the link between Ava's perspective and Lawrence's in many ways. We can see from his point of view the dynamics between his parents. Yeah, that's a really good point, Claudine, because you don't really see in present time Ava and Lawrence relating. But both of them relate to Max and Teddy. One of the wonderful things about writing from Max's perspective was seeing him trying to make sense of what their relationship really is and his increasing concern about his father. But also he loves his father, you know, and children do love their parents no matter what. They really do. And they feel a need to be around their parents. And so that was really very interesting territory to be in. I found myself remembering what it's like to be that age and not have that adult awareness and that adult sense of agency because you don't have that agency when you're little. The ending of your book literally took my breath away. Um, in, (laughs) In hindsight, I think it was the only plausible ending. But I wondered if you always planned to end it that way. No. (laughs) It's the short answer. Um, Look, it's hard to talk about it without giving it away. I avoided that ending because I had fallen in love with the characters. My brother said to me, you know, you really need to think about the ending. It's not quite working at the moment. Why don't you try something else? He's very gently but firmly saying, I think, this story is a story that's been experienced by people. It's fictional, but you're telling it for the people who no longer have voices. And... There was something really amazing about that. The other thing he said to me was, just write it, see how you go, and if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. But as soon as I did write it, all the other symbolism in the book began to come alive and talk to each other. There's a little truck, a little toy truck at the start of the book, which Ava decides not to pack. She leaves it in the sandpit. And then at the end, there's a truck on the beach. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, the images in the book are starting to come alive and be coherent. And when that starts to happen, you know that something's right. It becomes a coherent whole. I think somebody said to me recently, a work of art doesn't necessarily tell you when it's finished, but it tells you when you've gone too far or when something's not quite working. But it's funny because you want a book to be finished so many times before it is actually finished. Um, So there was a real lesson for me in that too, that you have to sometimes just stay with the mystery of what you're writing for a bit longer than our human timelines really like. Like, you know, you just sort of want to get the book off the desk and start something new. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Leah, many aspiring writers listen to this podcast and given your experiences, I wondered if you had any tips to offer about writing or the process of being published. Well, what I've just said actually is partly that it can be a very painful relationship between yourself and publishers and agents that are knocking back your work. And I'm speaking as somebody who's had lots of rejections in my time, all writers have, but there is really something to be learned from those rejections. You know, the book industry is not an easy industry. So the people like Catherine Milne, the publisher at HarperCollins and various agents, they're not necessarily against you. They just know what is going to work and they're looking for a certain standard and a certain cohesiveness of vision, regardless of whether it's literary fiction or 
genre fiction or whatever it is, to some extent, those divisions are a little bit arbitrary anyway. With rejections, I would take it as a learning opportunity, you know, that you just kind of go back into the work. Okay, something's not working, right, working here, what is it? And really engaging deeply with that. And I think the other thing that someone said to me was, you know, tenacity is almost as important as talent. There is this element of tenacity of just going, okay, I'm really upset and annoyed by that rejection. Yeah. But I'm going back in. Everybody I've asked that question always has something really insightful but very different to say, other than the very basic, if you want to be a writer, you need to write. (laughs) Speaking as someone who does have books in the drawer, you know, and this is a bit of a cliche, but I really do think that there's truth to this, that nothing's lost. You just, because everything that you've done, even if it hasn't worked, it's taught you things about your craft Mm. and it makes you a better writer and in the end, what are we doing but creating something that people really want to read and that's going to nourish them and excite them and inspire them? And you don't want a half-baked thing. You want a completely realised thing yeah. to be going into the world. And it is a lot of work, but there's there's something so joyous about really doing it to the best of your ability. Well, you've certainly created something that people want to read in sheer water. Oh, thanks, Claudine. Are you working on anything else <coughs> at the moment? Ah, yes, the million-dollar question. <laughs> I have a couple of manuscripts that I am thinking about going back into, but I'm not working on anything at the moment. I work at World Vision at the moment in the media team there, which is fantastic. And I'm just, yeah, I haven't had the kind of right headspace to go back into fiction writing, but I'd love to start something soon. Something in me would like to write something lighthearted and funny after Shearwater, but, you know, who knows? I don't know exactly what I'm, I'm going to end up doing. It'll have to be a watch this space then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, Leah, if listeners wanted to learn more about you, your writing and your books, where can they find you? Yeah, you can come to my website, which is just leahswan.com. I have a Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram. So I think Instagram is leahswanwriter and Twitter, I think, is swan underscore L. I love hearing from readers as well. It's it's wonderful. Leah, congratulations once more on a magnificent novel in Shearwater, a stunning read that I have no doubt will be talked about for years to come. I wanted to thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Oh, thank you so much, Claudine. It's been a pleasure. Now, listeners, as always, for your chance to win a copy of this novel, head over to my Facebook or Instagram accounts and follow the prompts to win. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.